is the Annex of Sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from the City University of New York. Today, a very topical subject during the coronavirus pandemic, online teaching. Today's panelists are Stephanie Medley-Rath from Indiana University, Kokomo, Derek Silva from King's University College, and Matthew Raffalo from the University of California, Berkeley, and Google. Our discussion was recorded on April 16th, 2020. So today we are talking about online teaching, probably the the topic that has consumed sociology departments across the world over the past couple of months. And this is interesting, you know, the online online and teaching in general, I'm sure you'll agree, is a topic that never gets the respect it's due. Today we have three great people, three experts on online teaching to talk to us. Let's start with Matt Raffalo a visiting scholar at UC Berkeley, currently works for Google. Thanks for joining us, Matt. Thanks for having me. So Matt studies youth and young adult interactions in digital technology, and he recently co-published Affinity Online, How Connection and Shared Interest Fuel Learning with NYU Press. Matt, can you tell us a little bit about your your background in online teaching? Um, Yeah, sure. So I would say most of my academic work has been centered on understanding instructional uses of digital technology in different settings. So um, I've got a book coming out that's on kind of face-to-face uses of instructional use of tech with mind to like race and class differences and how they're used. And Affinity Online, which I did with uh, some colleagues is centered more on online, primarily online only teaching. So that's kind of where my academic work has been and kind of to echo what you were saying, A lot of us that study digital research, particularly within sociology, have felt a similar feeling of like, when will the discipline catch up? You know, when will we have our digital moment? And none of us expected that this would be the way it would happen. I mean, it's just insane. Um, And I think, you know, to think of it more optimistically, we hope that this is now a time that we can help each other and and do right by each other and, and our students. Yeah, you're probably imagining some moment where everybody recognizes the intrinsic potential of the of the medium, but instead it's like everybody just got forced. (laughs) 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 Stephanie Medley-Rath is an assistant professor at Indiana University Kokomo and is the chair elect for the ASA section on teaching and learning. Congratulations, Stephanie. Thank you. Can you tell us uh, a little bit about your work in general and with the section on uh, teaching and online in particular? Um, Oh gosh, Um, so a lot of my research, so not all, but a lot of my research is definitely focused in the scholarship uh, teaching and learning arena. And, um, you know, right now I've been doing a lot of work about um, incorporating research skills throughout the undergrad sociology curriculum. Um, I did do a research project several years ago that um, was about um, online education where I I tested open access slash open education resources in both face-to-face and online um, settings. So, um, but that was a few years ago um, when I did that particular work. Um, Professionally or as in my teaching, um, I've taught 
extensively online. Um, not quite as much in the last few years as probably the first few years when I was teaching. So I think I taught my first class online in 2009, maybe. Um, so quite a while ago at this point. Um, and uh, the transition to online um, this semester um, was definitely abrupt and whatnot. And I keep going back to, we shouldn't be calling it online teaching. This is remote teaching. This is not really online teaching at all. Um, and all my classes this semester were face-to-face -face classes. Um, and the decisions I made for this transition are not the same kinds of decisions I would have made for a 100% online um, class um, by any means. So. We got to get back to that remote version of online because I have no clue what the difference is, but I'm sure everybody's <laughs> nodding their head. You can't see the, the video, but everybody's like, uh-huh, uh-huh. So we'll drill down to what that actually means to more ignorant people like me. Uh, but before we do that, let's introduce Derek Silva, assistant professor at King's University College in London, Ontario. Uh, Derek has a piece in teaching sociology on podcasting in the classroom and uh, just released a new podcast on the sociology of sport. Derek, you want to tell us about uh, just your work in general? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me on the show and thanks for the plug. Uh, it's at, <laughs> the, or at end of sport pod um, for the, for the listeners. Um, basically, I have sort of two areas of research. Um, one is in terrorism, radicalization studies, and then the other is in sociology of sport. And what kind of brings me into um, this conversation, I think, is that I've really been trying to develop ways or, or try to push us all to engage with new and digital technologies inside the classroom. So I've been a, a strong advocate of using podcasting as a tool, as a pedagogical tool in the classroom and trying to get us thinking about new ways um, in which we can engage with with quote unquote new technology or or digital technology so thanks for having me on the pod awesome it's it's great to have you thank you to all of you for coming on so the first question i i have is when you saw covid going down and it was clear that everybody was going to be remote not necessarily online and uh, maybe I'll get you to start off on the difference between that, Stephanie. But I want to know, in addition to what that difference is, what were your first impressions when you saw everybody just going online, uh, going online at once? Did it look like just was it? Did it look like a disaster? Were you like, oh, my time has come? What was your first reaction? Let's start with Stephanie. I don't know. For me, I, I guess. Um... And as COVID-19 was coming around, I'd been kind of following it a little bit when it, you know, when it was just like something in China. Um, so I had kind of, you know, been seeing what was happening and I had started spending a little bit more time on academic Twitter than I had before. So like I could see clearly what was happening and what was coming. And I would mention things to my colleagues and they're just like, you really think we're going to close and we're going to do this? I'm like, Yes, I do. And I think it's going to happen sooner than we all think. Um, you know, so I was already trying to like push that conversation just a little bit before it was just enforced on us. And I wasn't very successful there. Um, you know, when I tried to have the conversation in faculty senate, you know, we ran out of time. And then the, like the next day we got the we're going remote for two weeks after spring break. And it's like, yes, I need could, I knew that was coming. I just knew it. Um, and so one of the reasons I'm pretty insistent on like the difference between remote and um, online is that 
I am operating from the assumption that my class has to be accessible to a student who only has cell data and they're using a phone that's a couple generations old, likely has a cracked screen. And when I envision it that way, it definitely changes what I can and can't do. If it were just an online class, students signed up for it, I can assume certain things about the technology that they have access to. Since, you know, for all of my classes this semester, they were all face-to-face. None of them had signed up for an online class. I knew they were concerned um, because, you know, as I saw things coming, I was talking to my students about it. Um, I surveyed, once we got word that we were going online after spring break, I surveyed all of them about what tech do you have? What, you know, devices are you using? All those sorts of things. So I knew that whatever I created, it could not even be online education business as usual. Like it had to be something that was different that could be accessible to um, everyone and certainly influenced um, a lot of the decisions I made um, in the classroom. Um, You know, for me, um, you know, we all, you know, if we're uh, on the tenure track, we have a three, three teaching load um, and it's typically three different preps. Um, so there was also um, additional challenges just figuring out what to do with these different classes. Um, you know, they all ha- are very unique in very particular ways. So one thing that works in one class does not necessarily work in another as far as adapting it to online or remote instruction um, by any means. Um, and then I also have colleagues who they're, they are lecturers and they're teaching 4-4 for unique preps. So um, I have a lot of um, concern about, um, you know, how campuses communicated, how they were going to be evaluated and that kind of thing. Um, through all this, um, I have lots, con- lots of concerns about that. So I was grateful, like the ASA put out a statement saying, you know, take, um, take any uh, teaching evals with a grain of salt, so to speak. Um, because that it's just a tremendous amount of work to do very quickly um, and to do in any way that resembles well. <laughs> I, I think um, your the, the point of accessibility here is like absolutely key. And that, to me, I, I really like this distinction of remote versus online because the course I built is not intended to be online whatsoever. Mm-hmm. It was faced and it was cut two weeks to the day before the end of the semester. So we're really in the end. Like Mm -hmm. we're at the end of the course. There's very little we can do to kind of pivot um, the class to an actual online format. And if I juxtapose that to a summer course I'm delivering and I know that it's online, it's the whole course is created completely differently. They're not even, it, it could be the exact same course. They are completely different course builds. Um, and I think that these assumptions that you have when when it's an online course, you can expect a little bit more from your students in mm-hmm. insofar as like not being on a cracked iPhone screen, not having a family of seven people all fighting over one um, uh, computer. Mm-hmm. Uh, those might still be there. Um, I'm not suggesting that those barriers are not there, but you can expect that to be less of an issue when you build it um, online. So I, I really think like, the, the difference in um, building a course for the online format is actually accepting much more or many more issues of accessibility into the creation from the, the foundation of the course. So I really liked what Stephanie was saying there. I agree completely. Yeah, I echo uh, what both of you have said. I think, I think if I were to rewind back to when we were starting to get signals about the push to 
remote and needing to use digital tools. I I think to I was just having a conversation with a colleague of mine, Cassidy Puckett, who also studies similar stuff. And we were we were we were thinking about faculty that we've interviewed for our work where there's this kind of segment of faculty who are just when they think of technology, it's like, I hate this crap. Like I hate <laughs> this technology crap. And so like if we were to do like an analysis, I do think that's like one variable. That was like my first thought. I was like, oh God, what's gonna happen to those folks? But yeah. I think um I think if I were to anchor it to the literature and digital divides, um, you know, this isn't an experiment about what people do with cell phones or laptops in the classroom, which has been where a lot of work has been. Mm -hmm. This is a different test of digital divides. And that's what made me, that's the second level of thought I had about this. Um, there's digital access divides, which we've talked about so far. I've heard stories of faculty who said their students, their families are driving them to parking lots near fast food restaurants to tap the wireless internet to be able to participate in class. I mean, what a, what a telling story about just the access. Then there's yeah. digital skills. Who has the skills to do it, faculty or students? Mm -hmm. And third, I think is, is equally important, is even if we assumed that students had access or equal skills, how might things like stigma or race and class determine what shapes instruction once we're connected? Those are kinds of three levels that I think we as sociologists think about a lot. And that's, that's also kind of another level of thinking I was thinking as all of this stuff was rolling out. So I think if I'm understanding the three of you correctly, what you're saying is what we're doing now is not online. This is us all just right. going using web resources in an emergency. And if you want to actually go online, probably, and if you are planning for your fall, don't do this. Like there is a specific way to run a proper online class. What What is that? What's involved with that? What should we be doing then? If we're not, because I'm sure a lot of people are doing this emergency. They're like, well, I'm an expert in online teaching, but what do you have to learn and what do you have to do to do it properly? I I, I'll, I guess I'll pick that up. I, I really like the, uh, or I think we should be planning for the fall online. I'll, I'll lay that right there. Um, I don't know what admin thinks about that, but I think we should yeah. be planning as a higher ed. Um, so starting with that and thinking about building um, courses, Rebecca Barrett Fox wrote a really interesting piece called uh, Please Do a Bad Job of Putting Your Courses Online, which like the title is kind of like, oh, like don't do your job. But if you actually read into that, it lays out some foundations for how to build a course that is actually online and not just this like quick, like let's let's get through this next two weeks or next month, however long we have. Um, and I think part of that is is to create some humble expectations about what we can do and what our students can do. Because with all of this, like with all of uh, all of the issues around physical and social distancing, there are a lot of like hidden issues that we don't think about um, that are going to affect our students. So I think like, first of all, one of the things I, I really push for is to avoid any synchronous work, like avoid trying forcing students to meet up as if they were in a typical classroom they are not in a typical classroom um and i think like from the ground most of our courses should be built um with a like sort of a strategy of um not forcing students to be there in any particular way uh, or in a, at any particular time sorry 
And then second off, I think like looking to platforms that and digital technologies that allow us to create accessible ways to, to tackle to, to get at our students. Um, so I've used very briefly, I've used like YouTube actually for like day-to-day -day updates because it has a great, oh, there's a, yeah, Matt's a Google. So in the video, Matt's kind of nodding like, yeah, shout out for YouTube. Um, but I, I think it's, it's useful for closed captioning. Um, and I think that's very important. Zoom, there's no closed captioning, or at least I don't, there's no function that can be used. PowerPoint audio is typically like really bad quality and there's also no closed captioning. Figure out a way to add that to um, your lectures or to whatever kind of information um, you're, you're, um, you're giving. Um, I, I have a bunch of different points on that. I kind of want to hear from the other two as well um, before I kind of jump in more. Yeah, I would agree with that. So I would definitely say for a online class, design it asynchronously. Now, for what I did for the remainder of the semester, I'm calling what I did semi-synchronous. Um, I have the three different classes and um, I did things differently for each. So I have the intro to sociology class with about 37 students and I split them into four groups and I gave them each one 30 minute slot during our normally scheduled time. So that way I could hopefully continue seeing all of them at least once per week, um, that it was a very short amount of time. So if they are on cell data or, or whatnot, hopefully they could eke out 30 minutes. And if not, that was okay because I'm not taking attendance for it at all. Um, and I've had decent attendance at them. Um, for my senior seminar class, um, I have 20 students in there and um, I've just split them into two groups. So I meet with half of them one day when we normally would meet and then the other half the other day. So again, we're still kind of maintaining some face-to-face, -face, but it's much more reduced. There's also no attendance requirement. Now my third class is a whole different beast altogether um, because it is, was set up as a hybrid course for the second eight weeks of the semester. So we met for one week and then we went remote, but I had created a class that was a hybrid course uh, with very specific things in mind. And in that class, you know, we talked about it a little bit because after the, after the second day of class, I was, uh, you know, not crying in class, but like trying not to because like the discussion was just so amazing. And like the thought of trying to do that and recreate it online was just so, I, I can't even describe like what I was feeling, like, how are we going to do this? And they're like, well, we can still meet. And so we have been through Zoom, those who can, and I created an alternative for anyone who can't. Um, and it, but it's not the same <laughs> at all. I mean, you know, it's not the same at all, but I don't know what I would have necessarily done different. Um, I think to have moved it completely asynchronous would have created, um, even more issues for them because I would have then had to be adding, you know, discussion forums and, and additional sorts of assignments that I also really didn't want to do. Um, so it, it just really depends, but if we're all online in the fall, and it would be all asynchronous. Um, summer, I have one that's already scheduled online. That'll be fine. Um, the other class was also designed as a hybrid course, um, and it's a class where we have lots of guest speakers and do site visits. We are likely not going to be able to do the site visits at all, um, but I decided to keep our normal meeting time so that guests could just 
zoom in at a set time, um, but all students know that going into it. So um, I'm feeling okay about that. It's not ideal, but I still only, you know, that class starts in a month. So there's only so much time I can do to change it even more. So. Matt, aside from the endorsement of asynchronicity, maybe you want to endorse it as well. Uh, other other things that we should be doing uh, other than just doing our regular stuff online. So I think um, no matter what kind of approach you take in your class, a good first step, I think, just given everything that's going on, is to understand as a baseline what your students access as to digital technologies. So, you know, you could do a survey or an email just with the incoming group and be like, what, what do you have available? What are you most familiar with? What are you comfortable with? And you can kind of use that as a set of constraints to then design your uh, fantastic class. And then I think once you have that, I do think that, um, you know, you can look at your teaching philosophy as a professor, kind of even without technology, like what is your teaching philosophy? What is important to you as a teacher? And then you can use that to explore ways to adapt that to the available tools that you have. I think that that's really important so that faculty feel like they're still delivering what they love to deliver um, in their classes. And uh, one thing that can help is using syllabi from other people who've done online classes to help brainstorm. Um, and I think I echo what others have said is that, and I would, I would, um, I would, uh, I think take it even a, uh, in a different direction where I think project-based learning is where online instruction really excels. Um, so for example, I did, uh, to echo what, what they were saying about, you know, not doing high stakes testing or not doing, you know, um, so I did a class on social stratification where we used video as the object of evaluation, the gradable, the gradable object of evaluation. So we structured each week's readings about social stratification around creating, you know, uh, one group of students each week would create a video where they talk about the readings and the pros and cons and reflect on them. That was kind of uh, uh, graded in terms of whether they met the expectations. Then we would ask the rest of the students to reply in the comment thread in some kind of informed way. And that same week, those that did the work to create the video would then participate in a online panel with the professor and everybody else would be in the chat and they'd be like, you know, being like, go so-and-so or like surface questions. Um, and so in that way, and, and uh, you know, we knew with that class that people were opting into the class because they could do it synchronously and asynchronously, but you can kind of adapt it depending on what folks need. So that would be kind of my take on it. That's, that's really, uh, that's really profound, uh, statement that I, I, I'm getting from you is that tech is a tool and that still fundamentally you have like teaching goals that the tools may provide you but online teaching is not a different type of beast it's the same fundamental practice is what i'm gathering from you just by different routes is that what you're is that what you're saying am i understanding correctly yeah i think so i think with the caveat that sometimes as faculty you know we're not perfect we um, can always grow as instructors. And I think I think a lot of teaching research tries to advocate for particular approaches like um, not being top down as instructors. And, you know, I, I think no, no matter whether there's technology or not, 
the philosophy is what should speak through the, the tools that we use. I, I, I think like this, this idea of project-based learning is, is amazing. I do similar things. I've been an advocate of project-based learning, even in, in, um, the traditional classroom setting where I, I try to get students working on podcasts or working on video documentaries or scrapbooks or really whatever sort of creative element they can do. And I, I'd really, um, echo that in the online space, particularly because like there are not, there are not only pedagogical reasons like for avoiding tests, um, which I think is a, a different discussion. Um, but there are also administrative and practical issues here with avoiding um, um, tests or, or expecting that we can engage with final tests. Like online proctoring is, at, is sometimes expensive. Um, institutions don't have the infrastructure for that. And we have to accept that as a limitation of the very system that we are going that we're uh, engaged in. So I think that's that's really important to maybe change some of our evaluations um, in knowing that we're online, knowing that we're that we've moved to this online space. Let's talk about uh, the skills that both faculty and students need to go on. Let's start with uh, students. Because one of the first shocks that I had uh, when I started teaching was I had assumed that all young people were very tech proficient until uh, I saw all those AOL email addresses on my class signup list. And uh, so maybe we're going to start for a second. Like, in your experience, what are the uh, big sort of skill barriers that students face? when they are uh, engaging online learning? Is there stuff that they have to get used to? In my work, I this is a little controversial, I think, for most faculty. But in, in my work, I find that students actually typically do have some baseline digital skills already, for the most part. The question is whether teachers value those skills or not. Um, so most, we know that most students, regardless of race, class, family, origin, they have similar skills from using mobile devices, from gaming technologies. They know how to basically communicate online and they know how to create and share online media. Those are kind of baseline skills that people who study digital literacies care about a lot. And they say, this is going to help them get a job someday, you know, et cetera. But one of the interesting things that I think tech is a case of showing our assumptions as faculty, it kind of reveals the cracks in those assumptions, is that we have different expectations of how students use these technologies to get a good grade. So for example, are they using correct grammar and not web speak? Do they know how to write an email in a way that we expect from reasonable people? When in fact, most kids, you know, email is not how they're going to communicate with each other. In fact, when you ask them if they know how to use Gmail or do an email, they'll be like, oh, that's for like work. That's not like, you know. Um, so I think I think um, I think there is a translational element that faculty could do more of to help take a how can I coach students into taking what they know already from communicating online and be like, okay, well, for this type of assignment, this is what I expect. This is what I'm looking for. But maybe in, when we're chatting during an online lesson, you know, you can use web speak and I take that at face value. Those are, those are just kind of things that I think about a lot. Like web speak is like when you like write the letter U instead of Y-O-U or. Yeah, I think so. 
So it's like cultural capital things more than technological things then, isn't it? It's really like learning how to come across as a professional online. I guess like a lot of these user interfaces are designed by experts who make them easy by design. It's not like a lot of our online services are impenetrably complex, at least the ones that aren't done by Blackboard. But uh, <laughs> so like, what's your feeling about, or how have you reacted to sort of faculty? Because like, I have colleagues who are like, I don't know how to use Slack. And I think to myself, I mean, I haven't been 100% sympathetic to them because I'm like, well, one, a university professor is kind of supposed to be a smart person or like on it and able to learn stuff. And a lot of these a lot of these products are like very well engineered in terms of user interface where really you can figure out how to use it without even reading like an instruction page. So am I being unreasonable? Am I being a jerk? Like somebody put me in my place or set me straight? So I too am frustrated sometimes when I hear colleagues on Twitter and social Twitter kind of complaining a little bit um, or like explaining their frustration with students like not getting it. But I think like this is a two-way street. Like faculty have to move a little bit if we are going to expect students to also move a little bit. If we're going to expect students to like to say hello, Professor Silva in their email and not just say, hey, bud or or whatever, if we're going to expect that, then we have to move a little bit in away from our like comfort zone as faculty. So I think like some of the frustrations are very legitimate, like some of the frustration like like if you haven't used Zoom ever in your life and you're jumping on Zoom, I was just in a faculty meeting yesterday and half of the people in there were like, is my mic on? Like, I can't see this. I don't know how to use. That's real. You can't teach like you need experience with that. So we have to like kind of both come a little bit closer to the center, I think a little bit. And we have to set our expectations accordingly, but also be willing to get a little bit uncomfortable with the tech as well. Yeah, I think with you know, using the different technological tools that are out there, you, you need to have a reason for using it. And not just because somebody in your CTLA was like, oh, this is such a great, fabulous tool, you should use it. Like, well, what's your pedagogical reason for using it? What is it achieving? Um, and then don't throw too much at students all at one time. Like, don't introduce tons of different tools and all, you know, different places they need to go find things or that if they have to create accounts, just keep it keep it simple and, you know, slowly, you know, add in new bells and whistles if they're um, necessary. Um, you know, the, you know, this semester with the hybrid course, I started using a uh, voice thread in Canvas. And if I had a time machine, I would go back and not use it only because it was one thing when I was meeting with them a couple times a week to help troubleshoot. It's quite another um, to try to help them figure it out along with me continuing to learn it and figure it out all, all at once. But, you know, now, but I used it um, on the recommendation of CTLA as a different way of doing discussion questions. So I think there's a lot of promise there. It's just now was clearly not the time to try out the new tech if I had only known. <laughs> um, so, but I think that also goes back to, you know, what's the tech for? don't do something just because somebody else is doing it or thinks you should do it. Cause simple is sometimes, you know, better or figure out what tools your students are using and use those instead. Yeah. And I would add, I think, you know, 
faculty are under a lot of pressure to look reasonable and smart and but we're but we're but we're human too and i think learning new technologies can be very exposing and experienced as very exposing because you don't know how it'll adapt you know work with your kind of way of doing your work but what i've seen where the most success is for teachers learning new tech is actually to rely on interest-driven techie students of theirs to be allies in their own teaching process. So asking them for advice or like, how would we, how might we use this? Or what do you think other, that, that can actually be a nice way to help learn and, and elevate your students with a passion to help too. I should be paying some of my students for <laughs> how much help they've been. Let, let's talk about long-term. I get a sense that this experience is really going to change uh, higher education durably. I don't think, I think that once everybody tries a lot of online stuff, they're probably going to carry it with them uh, once we're allowed to go back to campus. What are your views about sort of the long-term trajectory of teaching given online technologies like what are you what are you excited about my my future my dream scenario that comes out of online teaching is actually um an understanding of sort of culture shift in higher education that is actually much more accessible and much more centered around hybrid courses as more of a norm because i think hybrid courses where they're in class and run online both at the same time are they're actually much more accessible than sitting in class or just being online because both of those groups of people are kind of looked after. Um, so I get that that's not um, good for everyone. And I understand that there are like fiscal um, issues and administrative issues with that. But if we can just think of just accessibility, um, I think that like the future is bright with, with understanding like, or at least accepting more online courses or hybrid models of courses. Do any of you have a sense of what the literature tells us are the real strengths of online versus traditional? I mean, online is potentially more accessible. Um, you know, it, it can reach students who otherwise would not, who can't physically get to campus, right? They have kids, they work crazy hours, uh, they have a disability. Um, you know, there are any number of issues is, that's prevent them from actually being able to enroll in a face-to-face -face class. So online can um, reach those students. Um, it can also give space for those quiet students to sort of blossom a little bit more um, and have their voices heard more than they might in a face-to-face -face setting. Um, so, you know, that that's certainly, um, there's certainly benefits to online. I mean, there's benefits to both. I would be sad to see face-to-face -face be like eliminated um, completely or wholesale at some institutions, which is, you know, a, quite a possibility. Um, you know, I really like the idea of maybe this is uh, the gateway to having more hybrid courses so that you can have the best of both both worlds. You know, at our campus, we're, we're a small commuter campus. We have lots of first-gen students. We have small classes. So there's, there's a lot of, you know, uh, you know, personalization and uh, lots of interaction between faculty and students and, you know, figuring out how to create that 
uh, in an online setting, I think is tricky. I don't think it's impossible, but I also don't know that our students are quite ready or expecting that um, either when they take an online class. So I think it's not just having faculty um, be on board with online, but also um, getting students to be open to new ways of learning online um, compared to past models where it's like do a couple discussion questions, take the multiple choice autograded quiz and, you know, we're, we're done now. Um, so to really get it so that it is a little bit more like the face-to-face -face setting is going to be harder um, for everybody. Um, yeah, and I would add, um, I think I think among the benefits of online learning are, you know, the potential to meet students where they're at, just because they're more familiar with digital tools and online access, though I would argue that's still balanced against how teachers treat the value of those skills. Um, another aspect of this that the literature points to is something called attention scarcity which is basically like what we're saying, there's all this information online that could be valuable, but sometimes there's so much that students don't know what's right or where to go or which would be most helpful to them. And that underscores the need for really helpful coaches who can kind of be a guidepost as to where to look online and how to use it. And if faculty don't try to provide that curation, then students will rely on their families where there might be some families who have more savvy than others to help do that work for them. Direct the students towards a larger body of materials, more than you could fit in in the class. So you can just make stuff available that they can find and individually explore a topic. Is that what you're saying? I think so. I mean, one example of this is like Khan Academy. So Khan Academy does the work of like organizing all the information that could exist out there into kind of curricular topics. Um, but that doesn't cover all of sociology, for example. And so say if students wanted to learn about a particular pop topic, faculty could create some guideposts of where to start looking, um, where to kind of deep in, uh, dive in, kind of like what librarians do when they are organizing different ways to learn about particular topics. That could be nice ways to scaffold certain types of online deep dives that students would have. I want to just give you what I'm taking away from what you're telling me, and then maybe you could just uh, give us some last words of wisdom. So what I'm gathering is that online teaching is not a fundamentally different beast from any other type of teaching, and that maybe we shouldn't fetishize it or think that it's something different or think that we, you know, it all works the same. Rather, online is a set of tools that we can use to construct a larger learning experience, but in some ways, it's very much along the lines of what we're doing in classes. We're just sort of expanding the toolkit, not doing something totally different. Uh, and that maybe going into the fall, what we have to do is we have to think a little bit more deliberately about how to engineer these larger learning experiences from all of the tools that are available to us. That's sort of what I'm gathering is, you know, best practice. And it's actually a very insightful lesson that I feel I've learned. Is there any other sort of pieces of wisdom or do you want to correct me if I'm totally off uh, as a last word? I, I think I I agree overall with like the sort of themes that have come up. But one thing we we didn't really talk about, and it's kind of like, um, I, well, it's it's maybe bad to end on this kind of note. But what we're really seeing right now with this pandemic is a lot of social isolation, and that social isolation is like leading to 
Um, I suspect a variety of mental health issues, issues with domestic violence in the household. So we can't forget the place of in-class education and pedagogy for students to be connected with other people. Um, and be actually in the physical presence of other people. And some people actually use education as a way to exit situations and contexts in their life that are damaging to them. So I, I'm, I, I definitely think that like moving on or accepting more online is, is, is amazing for all of us. We can't lose touch um, with how important the in-class experience is for a number of our students? Um, I, I think I would probably uh, just say, you know, one thing for me when we retooled to um, go remote is that, um, you know, figuring out what stayed and what goes was a was tricky and what had to be adapted and whatnot. Um, but what I came back to, and this is true for all of my classes, is what are the learning objectives for the course? And go from there. Instead of thinking, well, I have to do this once a week, or we have to have this kind of activity or that activity. What are the learning objectives? What do we actually need to do to achieve those learning objectives? And not add in all this other stuff simply because that's how we think an online class is supposed to look. Yeah, and I would, I think, I think one of the things that stands out to me is that this time we're all going through is really, I think, highlighting the importance of digital access when it comes to online or remote learning. But from my point of view, I hope that we can remember that access isn't enough. It's incredibly important, but it's not enough. Even if we close digital gaps, sociological phenomena like stigma, race, class, gender, can create inequalities in how technologies are used. And so I'm really hopeful that we as sociologists can lead the charge in advocating for increased digital access, but also reminding folks about how social inequalities can manifest even if everybody has them and in different ways um, and as we go about our teaching. All right, Matt Raffalo, University of California, Berkeley. Stephanie Medley-Rath, Indiana University Kokomo, Derek Silva, King's University College. Thank you very much for talking to me today, guys. Thanks for having Thanks. me. You've been listening to the Annex Sociology Podcast. Thank you to Matt Raffalo, Stephanie Medley-Rath, and Derek Silva. We're on the web, sociocast.org slash annex, on Twitter at Sociannex, and on Facebook, the Annex Sociology Podcast. Our producer is Laseth Moreno. Music by Lena Orsa. I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening.